All right, what's up, our family? Good to see you guys today. I'm excited to be with you today. Uh, we are diving into one of my favorite passages in all of the book of Romans. And so I don't know why Jason decided to take a vacation now, but I'm benefiting from it because I get the two best parts of the whole letter. So we're going to be jumping in today to Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans 7, 14. But before we dive in, I have a confession to make. I got to just be honest before we get into this letter. And my confession is this. Sometimes I don't like the Apostle Paul. Sometimes I don't like the Apostle Paul. And he's the guy that wrote the letter that we are preaching through. There are times when I'm reading through Paul's letters or particularly when I'm reading through Paul's story, as you see in the book of Acts, and I just don't like him. I think to myself, you know, I don't know that I would have wanted to be friends with you. Now, the problem is not with Paul. Rather, the problem is that I think Paul would always make me look bad. So I wouldn't want to hang out with him because he'd always make me look bad. I want to hang out with people that I can relate to, right? I want to hang out with people that are fellow strugglers, fellow mess ups. We're on the island of misfit toys and we're dependent on the grace of God. That's me and that's my people. And so sometimes when I'm looking at the life of Paul after Jesus saves him, not before, we, we know the Paul before Jesus, he did a lot of bad stuff. But when I look at the life of Paul after Jesus saves him, I just think, man, this guy is too awesome. This guy's too awesome. And so because of that, he can seem a little bit unrelatable to people like me and like you, people that are going through a normal, ordinary life. Uh, let's think about it together. Let me give you a few examples from Paul's life. Uh, I've never been bitten by one of the deadliest snakes on the planet, shook it off, and then grabbed a burger with my friends after. <laughs> Paul did that in the book of Acts, minus the burger. At least we think, we don't know for sure. I've never written a letter to someone or typed up an email and then later thought, you know what? I bet those were the infallible, inerrant words of God. Really glad I wrote that letter. It's a great email to send out. If you didn't open it, shame on you. God's words. I've never been to jail, so I guess I got Paul beat there in some sense. But if I did go to jail, I highly doubt that my singing, despite how angelic it may be, would not open all the prison cell doors and lead to an entire family's conversion. That happened to Paul, Acts 16. It's just a little too awesome. Now, guys like Peter, I can rock with Peter because Peter, for as many great things as he did, he is what you would call in the Greek a nincompoop. Did awesome things. He was involved in this jailhouse rock in Acts 16, but he did a lot of dumb things. Think about it. Peter denies Jesus three times after propping himself up. I got that. Check, I can do that. Told Jesus how to do his job better. Been there, check. Cut off a guy's ear in an unnecessary rage. That's just Atlanta traffic on a Friday. Check. <laughs> I can rock with Peter, but Paul, uh, I don't know. At least that's what I thought prior to reading Romans chapter seven, 
verses 14 through 25. I thank God for these verses because this passage shows us that the Apostle Paul, despite his many great accomplishments, despite the amazing ways that God used him, was still a struggler and a sinner like me and like you. In fact, throughout this passage, we really see two things. First, we see the tension and the tear of indwelling sin, even after coming to Christ. And second, we see the depth of God's grace in Christ despite our sin. And this passage is really the reason that I still like and love and can relate with the Apostle Paul. Now, before we dive in to our text for today, it's important to remember our context because Romans is a letter. And so we're just picking up right where Pastor Chad left off last week. So he's gonna sort of pick up um, in a way that seems like he's just continuing. And so let's remember our context so we understand where he's starting. Uh, In Romans 7, Paul is responding to a theoretical objection or a possible objection that would have come to him from what he was writing in the letter to the Romans. So he's been doing this throughout the book of Romans, responding responding to these uh, hypothetical or theoretical objections. And in Romans 7 in particular, the objection he is responding to at this point is something like this. Paul, are you saying God's law is sin? That's the objection a lot of people would have had to Paul's letter. They would have said, Paul, all this talk of grace, everything you're saying about the law, it seems like you're saying God's law is the problem with our lives. Now, obviously, we know that's not what Paul is saying because of everything that we heard last week and everything we read in the first part of chapter 7. But Paul's pretty thorough, so he's going to continue in that theme and explain this a little bit more. So he's gonna respond to it in verse 14, and then really for the rest of the chapter, he's still proving this point, but he's showing how that plays out in his life. So let's look at verse 14 first. Romans 7, 14. Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So right off the bat, Paul makes it very clear. The law is spiritual, I am sinful. The problem is not with God's law. The problem is with my sin. So when my ugly sin combines with God's good law, a fire combusts and that's on me. That's my sin's fault. But this is where he makes his jump because he's gonna go on to explain this same truth that the law is spiritual, but I am sinful by talking about how it plays out in his own life. And this is where Paul gets very honest. He gets very vulnerable with us. And we're gonna see a lot of phrases and uh, see a lot of things that Paul says that we can raise our hands and say, hey, me too. I, I understand that. I feel that. I can relate with that. So look at verse 15. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Sound familiar to anyone? I do not do the things I want, but I do the very things I hate. Again, this is why I still like Paul, because he's being honest with us here. And really what I think just happened, I think Paul just summed up the tension 
of the entire Christian experience in one verse. The tension of the entire Christian experience. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I had one of these moments the other day in the bathroom that my wife and I share, which is the first problem. We have a medicine cabinet and that's where we keep all of our stuff. It's just a single sink medicine cabinet. So we keep all of our toiletries and different things in there. And so it gets pretty cramped, obviously. And so the other day, my wife goes to open this medicine cabinet. And as she does, out comes tumbling a few of my things. So I got some, I got to keep this craziness on my face in check. So I got some beard oil and a comb, all that kind of stuff. So out comes tumbling all these things. And she turns around to me and she kindly reminds me that these things are not supposed to go in the medicine cabinet. They're supposed to go under the sink. Now, I want to get some, some interaction with you here and in Jasper. So all the guys in the room, when your wife says, hey, let me remind you, this is how something is supposed to go. What is the proper response? Just yell it out to me. Yes, ma'am. If someone said anything other than yes, ma'am, let's talk. I haven't been married that long, but I can help you with that much. The proper response is yes, ma'am. The problem is that was not the first thought that popped in my head. The first thought that popped in my head was this. Yeah, because it's my stuff that takes up so much of the room in the medicine cabinet. Now, ladies, let me ask you a question. That was my thought. Is that a proper response to voice out loud? No, definitely. I think I saw someone slap their hand. <laughs> That's fair. Not a proper response, which is why I said it. And so I thought to myself, you don't want to say this. You shouldn't say this. You don't need to say this. Don't say this. And so instantly afterwards, I said it. And I think about Paul's words, for I do not understand my own actions. <laughs> now, that's a lighter example, but, but let's think about it honestly. In our lives, there are times where we genuinely do the things that we hate. We do the things that even in our mind, we go, you don't want this. D don't do that. Don't say that. Don't look at that. But so many times you do it anyway. There are times where we snap and we get angry and we throw a temper only to realize afterwards when our skin is no longer green that we don't like that side of us. We don't like the people it hurts. We don't like the effect that it has. I've been working with students for a long time. So there are many times where students come to us with struggles of lust and pornography and almost every time, these students don't want to be stuck in that. They, they don't want to be trapped in the cycle of this. They want help. And yet, so often, they continue to go back to the very things that they hate. Maybe it's jealousy. You're jealous of a particular person's skills or their looks or their lifestyle and you want to let them be. You really do. You just want to let them do their thing, keep your distance. But when they come around, you can't help it. 
you can't help but do anything possible to cut them down, to take a jab at them. They may even be your friends, but there's just something about that in that moment where when the law comes and your sin comes together, that it causes you to do the things you hate. Right? It causes you to respond in a way that is not even what you want deep down. And I think this is the human experience in general. If you have any semblance of morality, any moral compass, any conscience, then you've experienced this at some point. But Christians are not immune to these feelings. They're not immune to this back and forth, this battle, this duality that you can feel inside of you. Because as we're gonna see later in this passage, Christians still wrestle with their flesh. We still give into our sinful nature. We still give into our old self despite the fact that Christ has changed us. And it's just true that when God's good law comes in contact with our ugly sin, it aggravates our sin and causes us to do the things we hate. And this applies to all of us. This is the tension of the Christian experience. But this isn't all Paul has to say. He's gonna continue his thought. Let's look at verse 16. It says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. It's a little bit of a strange sentence, but essentially what Paul is saying is, hey, the fact that I don't want to do these things deep down, the fact that deep down I hate these things proves that the law is true because my deepest desires are in agreement with God's law. So we know that God's law is right because it matches the way he has designed us deep down. But now he goes on into verse 17. I think he says something really important here in verse 17 for us to keep in mind as we wrestle and struggle. He says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is such an important distinction amidst our tension. Because all of us have felt what Paul described in verse 15. All of us have felt this tear between wanting to obey God and follow his good law, but instead giving into our sin. But here Paul makes an important point where he says, listen, yes, that is what you do, but it is not who you are. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, this isn't a cop-out. He's not going, it's sin's fault, don't look at me. Rather, he's saying, don't confuse your struggle with your identity. Yes, you do the things you hate. Yes, you sin, but that is not a reflection of your truest self if you have trusted in Christ. If you are now in Christ, that is not a reflection of your truest self. You are at war with your old nature, your old self, your former identity, and really your former title that defined you. You know, I've realized, and I don't, I don't know if this is just an American thing or if this is all over the world, but we care a lot about titles. Care a lot about titles. We want our title to either reflect the content of our character or we want our title to at least 
be an accurate description of our work. So we care a lot about how we label ourselves. So in light of this, I decided to do some research and I went and looked up some of the most interesting and most unique titles that I could find this week. I found some that were really good and some that were even envy worthy. Here's a a few of these and, and keep in mind that these are real titles on real people somewhere in the world. First title is this, Shredded Cheese Authority. Someone's real title. They go into work every day knowing that they are the point person for all shredded cheese related questions. And I'm like, man, that's a really big job. And so I think about the fact that I don't know if I've ever had a question about shredded cheese. So maybe it's more of an inflated title than anything else. Second one, this is great. Bear biologist and paper folder. This is the kind of guy that you would refer to as well-rounded. He's a very particular set of skills. Bread scientist, where do I apply? And then the last one is head receiver. Now, this is a normal title that you've probably heard before, but I wanna make a really important point here. This title hinges completely on pronunciation because if you're in a dimly lit room alone and someone walks in and says, hey, I'm the head receiver, Great, thanks for being here. If you're in a dimly lit room alone and someone walks in and says, hey, I'm the head receiver. Locate all the exits. I want my head to stay on my shoulders. You're not receiving it today. There's a lot of weird titles and we care a lot about those things. And even as Christians, we care a lot about titles, but I think we have a tendency, and I don't know if this is because of a self-loathing or a false humility, but we have a tendency to uh, put the titles on ourselves that are defeating. We put defeating titles on ourselves when our truest title is really a daughter or a son of God. Think about it like this. Think about these comparisons. We are sinners. That is true. But if we are in Christ, more than that, Ephesians 1 says that we are saints. And that's more important. We are wretched. The old song is true. He has saved a wretch like me. But more than a wretch, you and I are redeemed. You are worse than you thought, but you are more loved than you dared imagine. You see how it's really important how we define ourselves and which titles we put at the top? Paul is making sure here that we know, yes, we sin because we are sinners, but that is not our truest identity if we are in Christ. And we have to keep that truth intact or we will lose hope. We will be discouraged in the midst of our tension and the tear of our sin. So Paul says, the law is good. I am sinful. You can see that play out in my life and my choices, but even then that is not my identity. That is my old self still fighting for control. Let's look at verse 18. Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So here, Paul makes just a little bit of a shift, but it's an important one. 
He's saying my truest identity as a Christian is in Christ, but if left on my own, if detached from Christ, you must know that nothing good dwells in me. Detached from Christ, there is nothing good in me. Now with Christ, my identity has changed, but without Christ, there is nothing good. And so he goes on to explain this tension with just more specifically, he says, I desire to do good, but I can't carry it out on my own. I desire to do good, but I don't have the ability to do it. Christ has changed me and in so doing, he's changed my desires to match his own, but my flesh is still fighting for control. And so on my own, I cannot fight back well. Love this quote by Martin Luther. It's a more modernized version of this quote. He says, if left on my own, I would surely wreck it all. Love the honesty of that. If left on my own, I would wreck everything Christ set out to build. Because I need the spirit of God. The spirit and the power of God is what enables us to do the things that God calls us to do. If we could do it on our own, we would have already done it. If we had the capacity to do these things, to obey perfectly the law, if we had the capacity to please God on our own, we already would have done it. And so it's a harsh truth to admit that we cannot do this on our own, but there is freedom in embracing it. Because think about it, a, a try harder, do more, be better Christianity stinks anyway. I, I don't wanna be a part of a religion that just says, hey, do more, try harder, be better, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And if you don't do it well enough, you're gonna have to, to run some laps around the pearly gates before you get in. You're gonna have to pay off your sin somehow. No matter how strong our will is, no matter how strong our desire is, apart from the power of God, we cannot obey. And a try harder Christianity is not good news anyway. So we have to rely on the spirit. We have to bask in the presence of God. We have to feed on the word of God. We have to meditate on scripture. We have to pray and call out to God. We have to be with Jesus if we want the power of Jesus. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is when the early church is forming in the book of Acts and Peter and John are, are going and spreading the gospel around town. They're doing a lot of really cool things, but the religious people don't like it. So because of that, they're called in to stand before the council. And so the council is accusing them and the council is threatening them. And all through this process, you see that Peter and John just will not buckle. They will not buckle under the weight of the threats and the accusations and the pressure. And I love the perception of the people witnessing this happening. In Acts 4.13, Luke writes, now when they saw, and I don't know who they is, I don't know if it's all the council, everyone involved, says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. 
and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So what was so special about Peter and John? Nothing. It says they were common, uneducated men. They hadn't been to seminary. They didn't have some high-end job where people knew them in town. Just normal guys. And according to Paul's argument, apart from Christ, they too have no good in them. So the thing that made them special was that they were filled with the Spirit of God and they had been with Jesus. They were filled with the Spirit of God. They had been with Jesus. And so whether, it, whether it's being on mission and doing good or whether it's fighting against sin on our own, we are doomed, but with the Spirit of God, with our time in the presence of God, God can change things. But it is not of our own will or volition, but because of Christ. Look at verse 19 as Paul continues. He says, For I, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And really here, I feel like you're starting to feel the tension in Paul's words. You're starting to feel the tension and the tear and the wrestling and the ping-ponging back and forth of Paul's emotions and thoughts. You can hear it in his tone if you pay attention. You can see it in his words if you look at the particular words that he chooses to use. Look at what he said so far. I do the things I hate. I know the law is good because I hate these things, but it's not me, it's sin. Because nothing good dwells in me, as you can see in my actions, because I keep doing the evil despite my desire not to, but I still know that it's sin, not my truest self, but anytime I want to obey, evil is waiting in ambush. You see how Paul is just building up here? that his emotions are just bouncing off of the walls. And it continues in the next couple verses. Verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The deepest part of me delights in the law of God, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He says all of those things that we just went over. And then he says, but my truest delight is the law of God. It is deep down. That's what I love. That's what I delight in. But this war against my sin is raging. And sometimes I fail and I am taken captive by my flesh. He says, sometimes I am a prisoner of war and I took myself there. I let them take me. You see this? You see this emotion that's building up? You feel this tension in Paul and this frustration and this despair of seeing how sinful he is and knowing it's not him, but, but still being aware of it. And he goes back and forth and it builds and it builds and it builds until he finally bursts in verse 24. All his emotions are spewing out in verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This word wretched is not 
You know, we use that sometimes now in our Christian culture. Again, it's part of the songs and stuff. But this was a big word for Paul. Wretched meant deeply afflicted, dejected, distressed in body or mind, and miserable. And that's important because this isn't a false humility, wretched man that I am. And this isn't some minor irritation with sin. Man, I'm a wretch. Paul is dejected and destroyed by his sin, by the tension in his soul and in his bones and in his bloodstream. He sees his wretchedness and it is tearing him apart. Now you may stop here and go, well, wait, Corey. I thought you said our truest identity isn't our wretchedness. So why is Paul labeling himself as such? Well, firstly, he's not done yet, right? There's still more to this conclusion that he's going to build. But secondly, I would stand by that because I think in this moment, this is Paul's most honest response to how he is feeling right now. This is his most honest and humble response to the sight of his sin. He's being real. He's explaining what he's thinking and he's not sugarcoating it. This is honestly how he's feeling. And I think it's a feeling a lot of us can relate with. I've had times in my life where I've thought, man, I I feel like the longer I follow God, the more sinful I become. I feel like before I knew God, I was a lot better. I was a lot better person back then. But that's a misunderstanding. Rather, what's happening, I think, in my experience, maybe in your experience, and in Paul's experience, is that it's not that we become more sinful. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The Bible tells us that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. We're being transformed from glory to glory. So we are being sanctified. But I think the reason we feel that at times is because as we grow to love Christ more and become more sensitive to his spirit, we become more aware of sin and its ugliness and its effects. So it's not that we become more sinful. It's that we become more aware of our Sin and the effects that it has on other people and the effects that it had on our Savior. I think this is what's happening to Paul. He loves God. He delights in the law of God. So his sin is tearing him apart because he continues to give into and to delight in the very thing that killed his Savior. Let me explain it like this. This year, my wife, Kara, and I decided to read the Bible together, cover to cover, and that's something that maybe many of you do, and uh, we did this for the first time, and we wanted to do it in a little bit of a shorter period of time to get some of the overarching themes of God's story, and it's been uh, a really cool process. It's been really fun, and so we did that this year, and the other day, we were walking at the park because walking is the easiest form of exercise on the planet, and she said something to me that put into words what I think Paul is feeling 
here. Kara had been reading through the gospels and she said this to me. She said, reading the story of Jesus over and over has really changed my view of sin. I don't want to avoid sin just because God says to anymore. I wanna avoid sin because I don't wanna break God's heart. I said, girl, that is why I married you? It was a good word. But it's such a good perspective. When we fall in love with Jesus, our sin hurts us because we know it hurt him. Our sin kills us because we know it's the thing that killed Jesus. It's the thing that killed our best friend, our elder brother, our truest love and our savior. Our sin did that. Our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. And yet we just play with it and dabble in it as if it's not a big deal. I mean, think about it. This is why organizations like MAD were created. MAD stands for Mothers Against Drunk Driving. It was created because there was a mom who lost someone they loved to drunk driving. So that stirred them up. And she said, you know what? I don't want the same thing that killed the person I love to kill or hurt anyone else. And so I'm gonna go fight against it. It's a good mindset. But we don't do that with sin. Sin killed our best friend. It killed Jesus. It killed our savior. It killed our Lord. And we have to keep that in mind as we fight back, we have to keep that in mind. And if we really think about that, that if my sin did that, and if I was a part of nailing him to the cross, then you know what? The more I think about that and the more I realize that, the more Paul's response makes sense. Because I too can respond and say, wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me? Who will rescue me? As I wrestle with this duality between entertaining the thing that killed my savior and then trying to fight against that, who is going to help me? Who is gonna save me from my wretchedness? And I, I wasn't there with Paul. I don't know how this played out, but I can picture it like this. I picture in this moment that he is in the, the deepest pits of despair in thinking about his sin. And I don't know if he's just got his head in his hands. I don't know if he's got his, his head in his lap. I don't know if he's just sprawled out on the floor undone by this. But I picture that right in the middle of all this grief and all this shame and all this frustration and all of this despair as he is thinking about his sin, I just picture him for a moment where he just stops. He goes silent for a couple seconds. And he inhales. And he exhales. There's a couple more seconds of silence. And just the slightest smile starts to break across his face. The slightest smile starts to break across his face and he begins to pick himself up, arms trembling, but heart beginning to fill up. And he, he lifts his eyes to heaven he says, wretched man that I am, who's gonna deliver me? Oh, wait, forgot about the last verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's Paul's response. 
He goes, wretched man that I am. And he's in there in all of his despair. And then he smiles and he looks up and he goes, oh, wait, I don't have to be stuck here in despair. I don't have to be stuck here on the path to hell. My truest identity is not in this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, he's got a twofold response. One is wretched man that I am. I'm aware of my sin. But the second, and you cannot miss the second, is despite that, I have a rescuer. I have a deliverer and his name is Jesus. I love the way John Bunyan said it. He says, one day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. Despite our duality, our back and forth with sin, Christ remains constant. And our righteousness is not in us on our worst days or our best days. It's in Jesus every single day. And that is our hope. And that is our joy. And that is our comfort in the midst of this tension. No matter how sinful you feel, no matter how sinful you are, God's grace is greater. And Jesus died for us, despite the fact that with Paul, we say, even after all this, we still end the verse by saying, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Jesus knew what he was getting into. He knew we were gonna wrestle with this back and forthness. And he saved us anyway, and he walks with us anyway, and he is our deliverer for all of eternity and for every single day of our life. So Paul says, the law is good, I am not. You can see that play out in the tension and the struggle of my life overwhelms me, it crushes me, but even then, it is not my identity. And Jesus is still my deliverer. What's he saying? He's saying, despite our duality, Christ is our deliverer forever. Let's pray together. No one talking or looking around at this time. I just want to take this moment to maybe introduce some of you to Jesus for the first time. Maybe you have never trusted in Jesus. Maybe you knew the first response to Paul. You knew that you were wretched. You had heard about your sin, but maybe you had never gotten past that to the point where you realized there was a sweet and a good and an awesome savior in Jesus who loved you so much that he went to the cross to die for your sins and rose again to prove that he has defeated death so that you can live with him forever. If you have never trusted in Jesus, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that now. I wanna lead you in a prayer. And this is not a magical prayer. What I'm doing right now is I just wanna help you find the words to call out to God for the first time, not the last time, but for the first time. So if that's you and you wanna trust in Jesus, I want you to repeat these words to yourself, not out loud, Say, dear God, I see my sinfulness and what it did to Jesus. 
I am aware of my wretchedness and my inability to save myself. But for the first time today, I see Jesus who is my savior, who can forgive all of my sins, past, present, and future. And I wanna put my trust and my hope in him from this day forward. Now again, no one looking around or talking at this time, but if that was you and you made that decision to trust Jesus for the first time, I want you to do something for me. I want you to lift up your hand. I want you to lift up your hand. I want you to lift it up high and I want you to lift it up proud because this is the day that you have trusted in Jesus to be your savior. And I want you to keep that hand in the air. We have some response team members that would love to give you a Bible before you leave. Let me pray for the rest of us. God, I pray for those in here that aren't ready to trust you. God, that you would continue to break down and to stir in their hearts. Show them how good you are. For those of us that that know you already, God, I pray that you would allow us to see the Savior clearly, even in the midst of our sin. God, would you allow us to know and believe that your grace is so much greater than all of our shortcomings and our failings. God, I pray that we would see the reality of our sin, but not a moment later would you show us the depths of your grace, of your love. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray, amen.